You're listening to Ocean Currents, a podcast brought to you by NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary. This radio program was originally broadcast on KWMR in Point Reyes Station, California. Thanks for listening. Welcome to another edition of Ocean Currents. I'm your host, Jennifer Stock. On this show, we talk with scientists, educators, explorers, policymakers, ocean enthusiasts, adventurers, authors, and advocates all uncovering and learning about the mysterious and vital part of our planet, the blue ocean. I bring this show to you monthly on KWMR from NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary, one of four national marine sanctuaries in California, all working to protect unique and biologically diverse ecosystems. I'm talking with author Liz Cunningham today about her upcoming book, Ocean Country, due to be published in early 2015. And then later in the show, we'll hear about what's going on out in the ocean across the Cordell Bank and Gulf of the Farallon Sanctuaries off the coast of Point Reyes. Jaime Yankee from Point Blue Conservation Science is going to give us a call. He was just out recently doing some ocean surveys, and we'll hear some updates from the ocean from him. So, Stay tuned. I hope you'll stay for the entire hour. So today we're talking with Liz, and I want to give you some background about where she came to writing this book. The ocean she loved almost killed her. While struggling to heal after being paralyzed in a near-drowning accident, Liz Cunningham fell in love again with the sea, but then discovered that the waters she loved so were in tremendous peril. Her upcoming book, Ocean Country, is the story of her search to understand our mysterious bond with the seas, how crucial they are to our survival and what can be done to preserve them. From the Mediterranean to Sulawesi and West Papa to the Turks and Caicos Islands to her home here on the California coast, Liz searched for answers through interviews with conservationists, fishermen, and scientists, and witnessing firsthand the state of the underwater world. Ocean Country chronicles a journey filled with startling revelations and remarkable encounters with people hard at work to stem the tide of destruction and the capacity each of us has to contribute to the healing of our world. Liz Cunningham grew up outside New York City and received a BA in human ecology from the College of the Atlantic. She is the author of Talking Politics, Choosing the President in the Television Age from Prager Publishing, a series of oral hit history interviews with top television journalists such as Tom Brokaw, Larry King, and Robin McNeil. Her writing has appeared in Earth Island Journal, Times of the Islands, the San Francisco Chronicle, and the Marin Poetry Center Anthology. And she lives with her husband, Charlie Costello, in Berkeley, California, with her dog, Zach. Liz, welcome to Ocean Currents. Great to be here with you, Jenny. Welcome back to Point Reyes. How are you today? I'm doing great. Had a nice drive out today. That's great. So beautiful today. Let's go back a little bit. The presidential politic thing kind of threw me when I met you and learned about your writing. And tell us, how did you go from writing about politics to the ocean? Well, it's a long story. Um, My first book came out in 1995. And actually, then I started doing radio commentary. And about just over a year after that, uh, book came out. Uh, I like to go out in the surf, actually, right by Bolinas, and surf in a whitewater kayak. And uh, one day I was out there, and uh, waves were really nice. And all of a sudden, I felt something. It just felt a little bit strange. And I looked back, and there was a rogue wave that had picked up the stern of my kayak. And I'll say quite honestly, it just flipped me, flipped me like a toothpick. 
And uh, the next thing I knew, I came to underwater. And I'm in a whitewater kayak, so you have a skirt that's holding you in the kayak. And so my head was facing the bottom of the ocean. And so, you know, I was well-trained. I know what you do then is you take your hands and you reach up to pull the skirt. There's a little yellow tab. And then you get yourself out of the kayak. Well, I couldn't move my arms. And all it was was just this tremendous shock. And I remember my head was just screaming, going, come on, come on, come on. And, uh, you know, uh, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross has documented these stages. But, boy, when you experience them firsthand, it's quite different. And I remember I was in denial and bargaining and I was angry and all this begging. And then suddenly I realized I'm, I'm dying. And I went away and I went into sort of a dream world. And then to make a long story short, I had a conversation with a relative, which people often do. And suddenly through that conversation, I said, I want to do this. I want to make, I want to get back and try this again. And it was like somebody threw on a strobe in a stadium. All of a sudden, my eyes were open. I was back in what felt like a washing machine. And I felt this intense tingling in my hands. And the blood had returned to my hands. And I'll tell you, thank God the tab on the uh, skirt was yellow because I, I could actually see it in all that blue. And I remember I pulled it and popped out of the kayak. And because I had a life preserver, I absolutely would have drowned without the life preserver. All of a sudden, there I was at the surface, just wheezing like an asthmatic. And there I was, coughing, wheezing, just barely able to get a breath. And then I remember I just put my hands to my face, and I thought, oh, my God, I can feel my hands. And this launched you forward into learning more about the ocean? Yes. I mean, it was a little complicated. You know, I had always loved the ocean. Ever since I was 17, I went on an outward bound course. For two weeks, we were in the, in the, the Gulf of Florida. But I really thought of the ocean as sort of pleasurable and profound recreation. I was very dismissive of it. And this love affair that I had with the ocean, it's almost like now suddenly there was a crisis. And either the ocean and I were going to break up, and that was it, it's all over, or we had to take it to a different level. And I remember about a year afterwards going out to the beach, and I put one toe in the water, and I remember it just sent ripples up my spine. I was like, oh, no, uh-uh, not that. And I remember sitting for a while, and I was out there playing fetch with my dog. It was actually Stinson Beach. And finally I realized, and I almost think my dog helped me see it, that I said, okay, you, you need to get back in the water. And so then I went through a long process of really overcoming that fear, which was so bone deep and visceral. Gosh, I can't imagine. Yeah. That was quite, and that went on, it was really like Lucille Ball learning synchronized swimming. I mean, the degree to which I was nervous about getting in the water. I mean, I would sort of get in a little and I got to get back out. <laughs> and I would sit for a while and see. But then through that process, gradually I got underwater. I was scuba diving. And it was like a love affair where you've had a breakup and you get back together. And now you see it clearer than ever. And I was like, oh, my God. I love this so much. I want to do something for this. And that's really when the discovery process started. And that's really when I started to say, 
what could I do? What could I do with my skills? And then I started to learn more about ocean conservation. So Ocean Country is the name of the book, and you actually started out with a poem about it, and it somewhat takes you from your origins on the East Coast to the West Coast. And I love the the analogy of the West Coast being the ocean country. Can you read the poem for us? Sure. And also, just to preface this a little bit, I grew up outside New York City. And in habit of mind and temperament, in the quantity of coffee that I drink every day, I'm truly a New Yorker. (laughs) So, And there's this very famous New Yorker cartoon that was on the cover where you see New York City and you see that grid of New York City, and there's the rest of the world. It's really like a punctuation point. New York is the world. And I moved to California when I was 22. And at that time, I remember thinking, I'm moving to this state that's kind of shaped like a caterpillar. And I thought, this is ocean country. And I think this whole process of the book is really discovering, "Uh uh-uh, the whole world is ocean country because we're so dependent on water. But I actually wrote this poem before the kayak accident, and it's very funny to me. I actually read it to my husband last night. He was ironing his shirts, and I said, can I read and practice? He said, sure. So he's ironing, and I was telling him, I was saying, it's funny how almost the whole essence of the book is in this poem that I wrote almost 20 years ago, and which actually appeared in the Marin Poetry Center Journal. So the title of the poem is Ocean Country. It's the last gasp at the edge, the first breath of light, the place where the continent comes to a screeching halt. West and west and west, here's where it ends, here's where it begins. Blue and brown and white, thick with wind and rain and salt, the ultimate end zone clapping its can-do cadence in each beat of wave, begin and end and begin again. Dense fog, coarse sand, a soft crashing ringing in your ear. It's a dog tearing up the length of a beach, heart beating, mind racing, a blistering gait. Ocean country, last gasp at the edge, first breath of light. That's so beautiful, the way you read that. It's funny because you let me read some excerpts prior. Thank you for reading that, by the way. And I can, just the way you read that is exactly how I read the book with your voice and the enthusiasm, and it's so much a story being told. It's just so nice to read. It's almost like reading fiction and nonfiction at the same time, and it's Mm. like very brought me in. So thank you for sharing that. That's how I feel on the West Coast here. We are really on the edge here, especially with the San Andreas Fault, kind of right where we are right now. We're really on this interesting zone at the edge. It's just a really very emotional place in some ways. And the landscape takes it there, too. You went to a couple different places. We have Indonesia and the Turks and Caicos and the Mediterranean. What brought you to each of these places? What were you hoping to gain from them for for the planning of your book? Or were they places you were going before the book was even a plan? Well, the place that was a real catalyst other than here for me was the Turks and Caicos Islands. And I will say that I think that the the real structure of this book was to go on walkabout. Um, That I really felt 
an acute longing for the ocean and that there was really a lot of mystery around that. And I wanted to explore the role of the ocean in my life and our collective lives and do it in a way that the structure of it allowed me to really zigzag and be flexible. Um, so I really, I really wanted to go on walkabout. And so that being said, I didn't have an exact plan. And I remember, you know, I, my husband is, I will say, he's like my best editor and my best guide. And so, I, you know, I decided, you know what, I'm, I'm not going to query a publisher. I'm just going to go on walkabout and I'm going to write. And my compass needle is going to be truth. And the tone of the book and the shape of the book will come into definition through that. But that being said, I basically said, how could I encompass the globe? How could I do that? And there are lots of books out there, and you go here, and you go there, and now we're going to go here, and, you know, 50 wonderful places to visit. And I thought, okay, well, can I think of four contrasting places that there's really a lot of tooth in the contrast? And so I had already been shuttling back and forth between here and the Turks and Caicos Islands. And so that was a very good contrast because the Caribbean is very much so still developing countries, uh, highly impacted by tourism. I felt a very special personal bond with the Turks and Caicos Islands. Here we have a coast which is really a very healthy ocean compared to others and a very active environmental community. So I was saying, okay, could I find two other places? And actually, it was really a snap because I thought, you know, the Mediterranean is the most damaged, most industrialized uh, ocean probably in the world, and it was the seat of commerce throughout history. So, okay, that one really, that would be good to work on. And what would be of great contrast to that? And I really felt a developing world area would be good. And so the Coral Triangle which encompasses Indonesia, Philippines, Malaysia, Papua, Sulawesi. That area is considered now the heart of the ocean, and it is the center of marine biodiversity. And it also is subject to, um, I would say, some of the greatest environmental stresses now. And along with that, I was very interested to go travel and visit with indigenous people there who really called the ocean home. And they make their living from the ocean. They very yes. much, it's, yes. they are completely entwined yeah. with the ocean yes. in those areas. Yeah. Um, you know, in the Coral tri Triangle, it's 120 million people who either eat daily from the ocean or have a livelihood that's dependent upon the ocean. And so 120 million, that's a third of the population of the United States. Let's go straight into the Turks and Caicos because that's I I got to read the excerpts and you just t describe it so beautifully. I've never been there, but I just have this painting in my head of what it mm. looks like based yeah. on your writing yeah. and yeah. the stories that you told. And you on one of your last trips, you had a, a completely devastating discovery, and you write about that. Yeah, you have an excerpt from that, and I'm wondering if you would mind reading oh, about it. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about your process getting to it. Yeah, certainly. Um, I think one of the things that happened, you know, originally, um, I started to realize very clearly how much I love the ocean. And I thought, well, let's see if I can't dig into this. And so I decided to go there. And that was in 2008, actually. And I really didn't know what I was going to do. But I said, take pencil, put pencil to tip of paper, spend time with the 
time in the ocean and see what comes from that. And out of that came a desire to do more writing work. And then I started going back and interviewing environmentalists there and getting more involved with conservation issues there and then published an article. And then I had the idea to do this book. And a year ago, last June, I said, okay, we're going to go back one more time for this book and we're going to get underwater. And really my goal was to do a few follow-up interviews and then really spend some time in the beauty of those reefs and really try to write about those reefs and really try and communicate for the reader this incredible beauty that exists there and also this tremendous abundance of life, which really supports a lot of the islanders there because a lot of the islanders, as in the Coral Triangle, they're really dependent on their reefs for their livelihood. So I, so I went back. Things, I'm just whistling Dixie and... Uh, I had spent quite a bit of time at different sites. So there are a number of dive sites there where I was diving that I knew them so well. I could jump in at night and just look around and go, oh, no, it's over here. And in half dark, like walking around in your house at night, you know, if you get up to go to the bathroom, I knew those sites so well. I'm so familiar with that concept after living on Catalina for two years and knowing exactly where the horn shark should be. (laughs) Exactly. So you feel like, you know, you know these sites. So um, to preface this excerpt that I'm going to read, there was a site called Boneyard, and we had been there um, actually about a week before, and I just loved this site. And so I got on the boat that morning, and they said, we're going to Boneyard. And I was like, ah, ooh, that's great. <laughs> <laughs> and it was a gorgeous day, and I went and sat up on the deck, and there's this just in those islands, there's this extraordinary turquoise water. And, you know, I really... I would just say I was just licking my chops to get in there, and I was so excited. I was so happy to be there. So so here I'll go ahead and, and read this excerpt. It was hard sometimes to even see the coral because the schools of fish were so thick, and those schools were punctuated by hundreds of parrotfish in all kinds of colors. Maroon and turquoise, magenta and yellow and blue, colors so brilliant and brave, it was as if Picasso had painted them. And there were damselfish and hamlets and grouper and trumpetfish, not to mention a turtle or a herd of spotted rays or a shark swimming through. As we motored out, I remembered thinking that the waters of Grace Bay and the Point They were the most deeply alive place I had ever experienced. The boat slowed. One of the dive masters used a long pole to moor us to a buoy. Okay, kiddo, he said, get in the water. I put the heel of my hand on my mask to keep it in place and took one long step off the back of the boat and into that world I so deeply cherished. I exhaled, sank into the water, and closed my eyes for a second or two just to feel the water river along my body. Warm, I mused. I looked at my dive computer. It read 82 degrees Fahrenheit. Then I looked down at the site, which was now down about 40 feet below. Where am I? I thought. What I saw was almost unrecognizable. 
The sand channels were there, but there was hardly a sign of life. This, this can't be, I thought. Everywhere I turned, the coral was white and brown, with algae growing over it. There were a few small clusters of fish and an occasional lone fish looking out of place. The coral had bleached. I paused at a bed of staghorn coral. The week before, it had been filled with so many half-inch juvenile parrotfish and blue chromis that the water had appeared to be filled with blue and white snow. Tiny brown and white damselfish and bright yellow conies had peered out at me from the shelter of the coral's maze-like structure. Small fish had darted furtively and mischievously, sometimes chasing each other or nibbling off a piece of coral. Now the coral was barren, save for one single blue tang that nibbled on the algae overgrowth. We kept swimming, searching for a spot that might not be so damaged. How many miles did this stretch on for, I asked myself. As I moved my fins slowly through the dense water, it felt as if I swam through the ashen remnants of a bombed-out cathedral. It's a huge pivotal moment for you in this process of enjoying and exploring the Turks and Caicos. So where did you go after that with your thoughts about the Turks and Caicos and what to do next? Well... Right away afterwards, I was sort of in a state of disbelief. And then after that, it really brought everything to a new level because I had read about coral bleaching and I had read all these statistics about what was happening. And if you had asked me that morning, do you understand what's happening to the ocean? I would have said, you bet. And if you asked me in the afternoon, I would have said, no, I did not understand. So it brought it to an entirely different level. And I remember going out at night that night and thinking, oh, my God, how could we screw up a body of water that large? Because I knew this is because of climate change and also because of pollution going into the water. And so I understood all of a sudden and in a way that it's a funny thing because I would have told you a day or two before I get this, but I got it at a whole new level that in a way I started to realize how connected things were and that the water was part of the earth and it was like one large body that was suffering. And what was creating that suffering? And I suddenly realized it's us, it's humankind. And that just, it completely pummeled me. But I remember that night I had a journal and I went to sleep. I couldn't, I couldn't even write in the journal. How did other divers react on the boat? And did the dive master know what was coming in terms of he'd probably been there a lot before too or, or she? Really, I was quite shocked because I was not with a scientific team. And it was really, I would say, a kind of numbness. Um, and I would say also ignorance. And certainly in the past, I've seen that in other places. And so I think that people went, gee, something's a little off today. Um, and I really couldn't, I really at that moment really didn't want to tell people. 
I think they thought the viz is bad, where are the fish, Something's, something funny is going on. So they really didn't see it. And I think that it's a very sad thing around the world um, that people are not identifying what's going on because it's really like moving through a city of people who are ailing and ill and saying, well, this is all right. This is how things are. This is normal. So I think it's a very, very sad commentary on a lot of people who get to interface with the public about the ocean. But I will say that, you know, immediately afterwards, I, you know, what did happen even that day when I got down and there I was, I said, well, get to work. And I started taking video footage. And then I had a chance to visit with some scientists, friends of mine, colleagues. So two days later, we went and looked at all the footage. And what they explained to me was that that reef, while I experienced it as extremely beautiful, had been under stress for decades from pollution and from temperature changes. And we had had a three-degree spike in one week. And that spike did not cause the coral bleaching. It was basically like you had a struggling body of water and that spike in temperature was the last straw. And we're seeing that more and more around the world. Yes. These stresses kind yes. of compounding and the last straw is getting yes. more frequent. That must have been so hard. And one of the things you write is the problems are so massive and so in need of international coordination and paralysis is often the reaction, which I totally resonate with. It's so true. And then you write, so what's needed? And where did you want to go with that? Yeah, you know, I think there's two there's two great fallacies in the world. Um, and I have really, the process of doing this book has steeped me in both of them. And the first fallacy I think we hear a lot. And uh, what's amazing to me is we hear it from people who I think are very well-educated and very sophisticated. And that fallacy is that while we have an enormous number of environmental challenges uh, that it actually may make each other worse, that you really don't need to worry about it because in the long run, they're manageable and we're going to manage them. And there's sort of, it's, it's sort of almost a patronizing tone when you hear these things, but don't worry. Things, things will, you know, we'll work these things out. You know, this, we could have some chronic problems, but they'll be manageable. And that, to me, is really false because one of the things that I really saw through traveling through the world, is very often when I read, you read, you have X problem and Y amount of time, and that makes for the future equal sign Z disaster. And that's a lot of the environmental news that I, I, uh, I consume. Well, when I started traveling around the world, I realized it's not happening in the future. It's happening now. And who's affected? People. Um, so for me, I think that that is one of the big issues, is that it's happening now and it's happening to real people. I mean, you're almost brought to tears in Indonesia when you have villagers who eat fish three times a day, and whatever extra fish they have, they sell for what money they need. And they are just helplessly waving at a large bay of water and saying, for generations we ate from this bay, there's no fish now. So we have to buy petrol to go a little farther to get smaller fish. And that's a humanitarian crisis. And I think that that's happening now, and it's not manageable. It's not being managed well. 
But that gets me to the second fallacy. And the second fallacy is one that I have struggled with, and it's also a voice that I have in my head, and that fallacy is that individual people cannot make a difference. And I think for a long time I had a metaphor that really expressed how I felt about environmental problems. And jumping into this field after having covered presidential politics. And basically it felt like I've arrived at Major League Baseball and I get up to the bat and I'm, the ball is coming in 100 miles per hour and I'm ready to swing and I'm holding a toothpick in my hand. And that's how overwhelming it feels. And I realized that's, that's a false metaphor. And Pete Seeger actually provides a metaphor that I really see now as being very important to being an advocate in the world for a certain issue. And he likens it to a seesaw. And you've got a seesaw with a fulcrum, and on one end there's this big bucket full of rocks. And so you're at the other end, and you're going, look at this. You've got these big companies. You've got corruption. You've got governments that are not responsive. Uh, you've got people who are numb or unaware. And he said, on the other side of that, that seesaw, there's a bucket. And you've got a teaspoon in your hand, and you're going to go and put, you're going to put a teaspoonful of sand in that bucket. And on the one hand, that seems funny, but what he is saying is eventually that bucket is going to tip. And I think that the process of doing this book has changed. I, do, I no longer feel like I'm holding a toothpick. And I realize I'm every day, do a radio interview, you write, you're taking that teaspoon and you're starting to fill up that bucket. And then you can step back and go, okay, the bucket will never fill. But if you look at the major movements in history, if you look at the end of slavery, or if you look at democratization, that all happened with teaspoons in a bucket. It was multiples of people again and again and again insisting all those victories, those were not the victories of a few people. They were really the victories of people coming together. That's a great way to look at it is the multiple pieces. I got a little nervous there when you said, I'm an individual, I can't change it. And <laughs> it's interesting as a communicator and educator, it's something we struggle with a lot. Yes. Is what's our, what's our yeah. ask of people yeah. and realizing that these actions are connected to each other and that yes. we all have to. Yes. It has to just change. We have yeah. to change these actions that... It's not just one person doing that. It's now 10 people and, and so on. So, yeah, yeah. And it's, I like your analogy towards these major history pieces that we have made change. Yes. We can. Yeah. There is, a, there is a way to do it. And that's a wonderful piece of hope to take a short little break on. Um, for folks tuning in, this is Liz Cunningham, my guest here in the studio, who's talking about and reading passages from her upcoming book, Ocean Country. And... My name is Jennifer Stock. You're listening to Ocean Currents on KWMR, 90.5 Point Ray Station, and 89.9 Bellinas. We're going to take a short music break, and we'll be back in just a minute.
You're tuned to Ocean Currents on KWMR, and I have Liz Cunningham here in the studio with me, an author, talking about her upcoming book, Ocean Country. And Liz, I just want to first thank you for bringing in this music that you got permission to use by David Darling. It's beautiful. Yeah, I'm very thankful to him. It was it was very funny. He's a Grammy-winning Grammy uh, musician, and after I came back from seeing the coral bleaching, you know, I wrote in this long, long very passionate email, may I use your music? And he wrote me back and said, certainly, absolutely. Good luck with your work. That's wonderful. Well, thank you for sharing it with us today at KWMR. So you had an example of, we were talking about the teaspoons of sand and tipping that bucket, and you mentioned that there's a piece that you write about in the book about tuna. And yes. I take, yeah. it's in Indonesia? Yeah. Uh, actually, no, it's in Europe. And I, you know, here's the thing. I mean, you have these ideas and it's just, you know, an extra glass of wine at night and you can talk philosophy and you can talk about the toothpicks or the buckets of sand and the fulcrum and all these nice ideas. And you're like, so what? Does it really matter how I think about the world? Does it change anything? Or is this just a lot of hot, you know, hot, nice talk? Well, one of the things that was so interesting is that I planned to go to the Mediterranean to write about bluefin tuna because I wanted to write about mass extinction. And here was this fish that was doomed to become extinct, the bluefin tuna. And all the indicators were saying it's going to become extinct. And I said, great, this is perfect for me. I'm a journalist, so sometimes something awful is, is you mean good because you it's want good to write about story, Yeah, I'm going right? to go write about this. Okay. So I had a plan. <laughs> I'm going to go write about mass extinction. Well, in the time between the time that I wanted to write about it and by time I got to interview Sergei Tudela, who is head of the World Wildlife Fund Fisheries Program, during that time something happened, which is all of a sudden the bluefin tuna populations started to come back up. And everyone's like, no, this is too good. This was the most hopeless fishery, probably the most doomed fish. You have a 500-pound fish that sells for $700,000 on a Japanese market. The mafia involved, there's all kinds of money. It's just, it's a really difficult fishery. I would say the most intransigent fishery. So I interviewed Sergei Tudela and I said, so what happened? And the first thing he said was, we didn't quit. And then he started making lists, and all of a sudden it was the teaspoons in the bucket. He said, it was the landing size. We raised it. We lowered the quotas. We changed the open season. We had a public awareness campaign. We went to chefs and fishmongers and restaurants, and we had, we had public demonstrations. And all of a sudden you went, oh, my God, it was all the teaspoons. That's exciting. Yes. And I, you know, there are certain things we don't know where it's going to go with bluefin. They may never get back to the levels that they were. But it is an instance where you have the most hopeless environmental problem actually turn around. Amazing. And it's a really actually very amazing because I was just thinking bluefin, I, I hear about a lot, a doomed fishery. And it's nice to hear there's some positive happening. I'm, I'm not too up to date on bluefin, so that's, that's good mm -hmm. to know. Well, we have just about six or seven minutes left, and one of the favorite passages that I love, and I also love it because we talked about it, um, was a period, a time, a trip you just actually took in the last yes. year yes. to the Dominican Republic, and an opportunity to see humpback whales yes. and calves. Yes. 
up close, which we don't do here in the United States because the Marine Mammal Protection Act. But I know they take quite the stewardship approach with this specific site. Yes, yes they do. So tell us, why did you go to this site? Was this a conservation question you wanted to learn about, or was it more an experience? Well, there were all kinds of arrows pointing me there. Um, I think one of them, and the biggest one, is I think there was no relationship between an aquatic creature and mankind that so set in relief the relationship of the sea to civilization. I mean, the slaughter of the sea mammal goes all the way back to Babylonian times. And I think it's there's a famous god, Marduk, who slaughtered the sea monster, Tiamat. And it goes way, way back into the psyche of civilization. Um, I also felt and had heard that there are experiences of great awe and beauty with whales that are really remarkable. So I was very interested myself. But I would say that that reason, and then one more, which is that humpback whales are also a real sign of success because they were almost driven to extinction. And that was also another bucket of sand moment where all the different demonstrations, the lobbying, the legislation, the awareness raising added up. Well, let's read the passage. So to preface this a little bit, one of the things that was so unique when we were on the boat is that there were couples there that had kids with them. So that was very special. And I think that when I was on the boat, I was still struggling with how I was going to really meet these challenges. And something happened while I was underwater that really made me see that because I myself still felt very overwhelmed by the powers that be and how you're really going to match that. So this is where we're going out and we're going to go out and swim with these whales. The mother and calf surfaced together once more, exhaled with a muffled burst and descended like a submarine and its companion submersible, we slipped into the water. The mother was resting motionless at about 60 feet, and the calf had nuzzled itself right beneath her chin with the sleepy-eyed, soft-mouthed expression of a baby in a cradle. The water was suffused with a peacefulness and some unthinkable energy which I was at a loss to name. Every few minutes, the calf stirred and rose as if swimming in its sleep, outstretching its newborn fins in slow motion to propel itself to the surface and take a breath. Then it sank down, as if tiptoeing back to bed in a trance-like slumber and tucked itself back under its mother's chin. We floated like a loose-knit blob, loose-knit blob of jellyfish, gawking silently, there was just an hour or so of daylight left, and the light cast angular, silvery threads through the darkening, violet-blue water. Once again, the calf raised its head and slipped out from under its mother's chin. But this time, it seemed to wake out of its slumber. As it rose, it turned vertically in the water, revealing the soft-looking pleats beneath its throat and belly. When a whale turns its belly towards you, Jean had told us, it's actually positioning its eyes so it can see you best. The calf spread its fins like wings, took a breath of air, and began to swim horizontally, 
bobbing slowly just below the surface. The mother started to rise, steady like a slow-moving barge. Soon their heads were just a few feet away. The calf wobbled in the sea surge playfully. Its fins spread like the wings of a fledgling sparrow. Right behind it was the mother's long head. Her eye, big as an apple, was filled with steady confidence and warmth. Bury me here, I mused. When I die, bring my ashes to a moment like this and scatter them. My God, I'd never thought anything like that before. What had me by the throat? It was so clear, it was silly, I hadn't seen it before. That energy, that unthinkable energy that I was at a loss to name, it was power. Unthinkably massive power married to kindness. Forty tons of constant attentive, steadfast care. Mumsy could break one of our necks with a casual flick of one of her fins. Our boat, half her size, certainly wouldn't survive a breach on top of it. But what was she doing? Gently approaching, careful that her fins might not hit anyone, slowly, as if not to startle us. Soon she would migrate north, navigate threats of ship strikes and fishing gear entanglement and orcas attacking her calf. But despite all the changes in the seas that we have wrought, she would guide her calf north. She would forge on ahead. Eva swam up beside me. We held hands as the whales nudged closer still. I felt Eva's soft, tiny hand in mind, wove my fingers into her small, squirmy fingers and squeezed. Bring out the best in me, kiddo, I thought. Bring out the best in me. The calf turned slowly, as if on a spindle, and eyed us with a wink. The pleats on its belly were unscarred and smooth, like the porcelain skin of a newborn baby. The mother calmly looked on. Our search was over. They were finding us now. <laughs> this gives me tingles thinking about that experience. I've never seen something so large underwater. Yeah, yeah. And you were experiencing this with a young, a young girl. Yeah, I mean, there were these kids on the boat. And, you know, the first thing we noticed was we're all on good behavior. We're all behaving better than usual. We were at our best. And so, you know, when I got underwater and she just happened to swim up next to me, I just realized, you know, that's what this is all going to be about. There's no formulas. Do your best. Do your best. That's wonderful. Thank you for sharing that passage. It's beautiful. All of it is wonderful. And I can't wait to read the whole book when it's all together and yeah. you're out on the road doing some tours yeah. and stuff. We just have another minute here. Are, is there ways that people can contact you? Or? Yes, absolutely. Um, if you Google me, Liz Cunningham, uh, my site will come up, and there's a really nice little field that you can enter your email address in, and then I will do quarterly updates on the book, and you'll also see some blog entries, and there are also links there to excerpts of the book that have already been published. Right, and some things that we haven't read here today, too, so that's, that's great. LizCunningham.net. 
Thank you so much, Liz, for coming in today. It was such pleasure having you in the studio. Great to be here with you, Jenny. We're going to take a short break here, and when we come back, we're going to get a local ocean update. Just like Liz was seeing whales underwater, uh, there's whales around here as well, and we're going to hear a little bit about what's going on in the ocean offshore. So stay with us. to Ocean Currents here on KWMR. My name is Jennifer Stuck, and you've just been listening to an interview here with Liz Cunningham, an author talking about her upcoming book, Ocean Country. But we're now going to shift gears and get a live update from what's been happening on the ocean offshore, and I'd like to welcome Jaime Yanke. You're live on the air. Hello, Jenny. Thank you for the invitation today. You're welcome. Jaime is joining us from Point Blue Conservation Science in Petaluma, formerly known as PRBO. And Jaime, give us a little bit of a background. We've talked about this on the show before, but what were the surveys about that you were doing offshore of Point Reyes? Over the last several years, since 2004, we have been working together with between PRBO, Conservation Science, now Point Blue, and uh, Sanctuaries, both uh, Cordell Bank and Gulf of the Farlands, to go out into the ocean and survey what uh, distribution and abundance of whales and birds and their food is during the, during the summer. We try to have three to five um, cruises, and we use this information to help you guys management of this area. Management of the area. Well, and so you just had a cruise that ended just about a week and a half ago, and just keeping in touch through Facebook, it looked like you had wonderful sea conditions, which probably helped some visibility. What were some of the highlights of the week? As you said, we had a great cruise. It was the water was almost glassy for most of the days, and it, it was so glassy that we were able to see uh, leatherback sea turtle on our first day. We saw several sharks swimming right near the surface of the water. Some of them are very close to the boat, as uh, salmon and blue sharks. We have some encounters with um, killer whales, at least two pods on two different days, and we had some humpback whales that came very, very close to the boat. That's so exciting. So I take it when the whales approach, you kind of have to stop for a little bit. Does that slow you down for the day? Yes. So in two different occasions, the whales came right up, right to the boat, and we had basically to stop our engines and wait for them to leave. They were circling us for about 40 minutes each time. I don't think they were really feeding. They were just curious. And one time it looked like they were scratching on the boat and <laughs> a little of the skin came off. Wow, that's cool. This information is being used with man- regional management, and most recently I know that you've been involved with the sanctuaries, with the Coast Guard and the relocation of the shipping lanes, and now looking at kind of monitoring where the whales are in relocation to the shipping lanes. Can you tell us a little bit about the new digital application that you're, that's been released now that is helping to gather information? There is a group called Conserve.io that put together an iPhone app that anybody can use and download on their phones that allows them to to log where they see a whale when they are in the water on a whale watching tour on a, or a fishing charter boat. If you see a whale, you log it into your app, and that information goes into the a server on the East Coast that then PRBO is able to log in and harvest that information, and we summarize it and make it available to, to the sanctuary so you can assess where the whales are, when they are there, 
and use the information over time to manage shipping in those areas. If there's a lot of whales in the shipping lane, specifically endangered ones, there might be a notice to the mariners in terms of requesting a slowdown or rerouting, taking another lane. That is correct. So, so far, reports of the, num- the presence and the number of whales uh, near the shipping lanes have led to a notice to mariners that just uh, asked industry to be cautious when coming into the San Francisco Bay area and to be, yeah, to look for animals and to be cautious. Over time, there will be other types of requests, such as to use a different lane or to adjust their speed if needed. So it's important for all this information to be gathered. It can be applied, and this is a perfect example with endangered species in this very productive area. This is a great use of of science to really help with the management and trying to conserve these with the overlap of uses we have in these waters. What else is happening out in the ocean? Was the productivity, meaning the krill and the fish in the water, pretty good still? I imagine it is since the salmon apparently is off the charts. <laughs> yeah, so when we went um, up into Bodega after uh, working during the day and we're, we were trying to find a docking space for the night, we were, the whole, that the Point Marina docking space were all used because there's so many fishermen working out there. It's a productive year. There's a lot of fishing. There's a lot of recreational fishermen working uh, or uh, fishing um, out of the San Francisco Bay Area and the Bodega Bay Area. For us, we saw lots of uh, humpback whales, not very many blue whales. We saw lots of birds and um, birds, and by the way, are doing really great on the Farallon Islands. However, when we use our net to sample the amount of food for whales and birds that is in the water, we found that there is not as much as we saw in 2010 and 2011. We had some krill in our samples, uh, but we have mostly uh, what we would call gelatinous zooplankton, which is uh, clear uh, comb jellies and salts and other clear-looking zooplankton that is very reflective to the fish finders that we use on the boat, but is not a great food for uh, whales and birds. Interesting. Well, you go out again in September, right? So it'll be interesting to see what the differences will be in the water then. Yes, so we have another cruise planned for the third week of September, and we are looking forward to it. It's always a good July and September tend to be uh, big numbers uh, for us when looking at whales out here in the uh, sanctuary. Wonderful. Well, Jaime, thanks so much for calling in to give us a short update about what Access is up to. Is there a website you'd like folks to check out to learn more about the Access program or see pictures from your cruises? Yes, folks can find us two ways. They can log in, go to the web and look for accessoceans.org, or they can look for us on Facebook at Access Partnership. Accessoceans.org and Access Partnership. Partnership on Facebook. Yes. And I will just tell listeners, the photos are wonderful. It really brought me into the cruise. I was so excited for you guys. (laughs) Thank you. We had a great time. Well, thanks again, Jaime, for giving a call in, and we'll talk to you soon. Yep. Thank you for the invitation. All right. Take care. Yeah. Bye-bye. That was Jaime Yonke from Point Blue Conservation Science, located in Petaluma, and a partner to Gulf of the Fairlands and Coral Bank Sanctuaries, working on uh, surveying the ocean offshore to understand the conditions, the food web, and and how the whales and seabirds are responding to that, and and also starting to track other things like ocean acidification. So a very important partnership helping to conserve these resources. We are close to the end here of the show, and I just want to thank you all for tuning in today to Ocean Currents. Ocean Currents is the first Monday of every month. 
It's part of the Westmer and Matter series, where every Monday at 1, you can tune into KWMR and learn about a topic of environmental focus, either locally or globally. And Ocean Currents has a podcast. If you haven't checked it out yet, you can go to iTunes and search for Ocean Currents, or you can come to cordellbank.noaa.gov to get past episodes. So check those out. Um, Two other things I'd like to let you know about. First of all, the photo exhibit that we have up at the Point Reyes Library. There's a photo exhibit of images of Cordell Bank, both seabirds and mammals and underwater reef stuff. That's going to stay up a little bit longer. So if you haven't had a chance to check it out yet, please go over there. There's some beautiful images up. Check the Point Reyes Library for their hours, and it's up for probably a couple more weeks. I'll wait for the phone call of when it needs to come down, but it's up there right now. And also this Thursday is a Sanctuary Advisory Council meeting for the Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary, and that is also at Point Blue Conservation Science Headquarters in Petaluma. I believe it starts at 930, and you can get the details, the agenda at cordellbank.noaa.gov to hear what the council will be meeting about. So thanks again for tuning in today to Ocean Currents. Have a great time. Make sure to enjoy the weather. Get out, go for a swim, look for whales, go to the beach, have fun. show is brought to you by NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary on West Marine Community Radio KWMR. Views expressed by guests on this program may or may not be that of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and are meant to be educational in nature. To learn more about Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary, go to cordellbank.noaa.gov.